Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the, uh, the lead pastor here, and I want to welcome you. And uh, thank you for joining us this morning as we continue our study in the book of Galatians. Um, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's open up to page 975 in the Black Bibles in front of you, Galatians chapter 5. If you have your own, uh, if you have an app on your phone or whatever, go ahead and open it up to Galatians chapter 5. Um, if you are a guest with us this morning and, and you don't have a Bible of your own, um, we would love for you to go ahead and just take the one that's on the chair in front of you. It's our gift to you. Uh, anything we can do to put the Bible into your hands to equip you to read it, study it, and uh, get to know God, we would love to do it. And so um, feel free. It would be our pleasure to make that our gift to you. All right, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 26. Now, for some of you, this is... Uh, you're, you're already getting a hint. This is a little bit of a bait and switch. Last week I told you guys we'd be going to Romans 14. Um, changed my mind uh, last night at 10 o'clock. And so um, seriously, had the whole message outlined, the whole thing done, and it was like, that's just not the one I'm going to give. So I'm going to turn that into a PDF. I'm going to push it out on the city um, because I think it's obviously Romans 14 is valuable information, um, but it wasn't what I felt like the Spirit was telling us to dig into this morning. So we're going to keep moving into Galatians because I think this is where, where God is taking us. So follow with me. We're going to start in Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live with the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Word of the Lord. You guys, why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this Word. We thank you that um, you have given us such a profound insight into our own hearts and such a profound insight into how you want to deliver us to freedom. Spirit, I pray that you will open this word to us this morning, that it will speak to our hearts, call us to freedom, show yourself to us. Lord, we are helpless to discover you on our own. We need the enlightening work of your presence. And so I pray that you would um, be here, be present, open our eyes so that we can see what's real, what's true, what's valuable, what gives life. Spirit, I pray that you will um, 
lead my words, that you will um, magnify those things that give honor to you, that you will direct this message even as we unpack it. We're completely dependent on you, and that's not a bad place to be. So we thank you that you love us and you're for us and that you're with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, in uh, World War I, um, interesting fact, um, World War I was, a, was primarily a land war, and um, a lot of it was fought in trenches. And uh, I, I can't think of a more miserable way to fight a war. By the end of World War I, each side, the, the, um, um, the allies on one side, and, and um, they, they had dug over 20,000 miles of trenches. 20,000 miles of trenches. And they lived in those things. Um, they were rooted in, and, and at some points, the trenches were only 50 yards apart. And during the day, they would basically just hide out. You, you couldn't get above, you, you stuck your head above ground, you'd get shot. So during the day, you just, you just lived in the trenches. And at night, when it got dark, that's when you would get out and lay the barbed wire. That's when you would get out and move around. That's when you would start exploring. And... Um, <clears throat> These guys, it was such an intense experience that they would have to do, um, they had multiple layers, you know, the, the, the trenches that were closest and the ones that were farthest back. And every two weeks they would rotate where they were so that they basically wouldn't go crazy in the process of, of the war. Bad place to be, um, especially at night. There are stories of guys basically getting lost in the trenches. They would be with everybody, and then suddenly they would not be with everybody. And it's dark, and they're stumbling along, and at times, by accident, their trenches would even connect with one another. And, uh, and so you would simply stumble into the enemies and not have any idea of where you are. Um, here's the thing. As long as they were stuck in those trenches, that war could have lasted forever. Could have lasted forever. And, and the reason I'm sharing this story is because that is the image that Paul gives us of our hearts. In this passage, we are given a compelling vision of the fact that, that there is a war being waged in our hearts as followers of Christ. As those who have believed in Jesus, we are, in a sense, the battlefield. The battlefield is not out there. The battlefield is in here. And the battle, ultimately, is for our affections. The battle is for our love, because ultimately what we love is what we turn to um, to give us life. What we love is what we turn to to make us free. And so the flesh and the spirit are entrenched. In fact, um, right here in the beginning of, of, our, of our section in verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against or entrenched against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are entrenched against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. Here's the deal. We've, we've, over the last couple of weeks, been talking a lot about freedom. Two weeks ago, we talked about how we are called to defend our freedom against uh, religious performance, right? That we sell out our freedom and, in fact, give up the hope of the gospel when we turn to attempts to please God instead of resting in how God is pleased in Christ, 
right? Let me just give you a synopsis, right? The gospel. Um, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die, right? God in the flesh came and did what we couldn't do. He lived the perfect life. In all the ways we failed, he succeeded. In all the ways we disobeyed, he obeyed. He lived the life we should have lived, right? But then he went and he died, not because he deserved death, but because we did. He was our substitute in judgment. He was God's plan of salvation for the world, of deliverance, to deliver us from our own brokenness, our own sin. God loved us enough that he ultimately came and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, right? So Jesus died as our substitute in our place, taking God's wrath against our sin and completely satisfying God on our behalf. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it proved that God was satisfied, right? And we're called to believe in Christ. That's kind of the heart of the gospel is, is, is the message of love that, that, that God says, look, I've done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Now trust me, believe in me, right? I've, I'm here to rescue you from yourself, but if you're going to be rescued, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to believe me. And so we are called to believe in Christ. And, and when we believe, we are justified, a word that simply means we're declared right. We're set free in, in the biggest picture, set free from the consequences of our sins, set free from the shame and the guilt and, and the weight of the things that we've done wrong on a cosmic level, right? That, that God basically says, I no longer hold you accountable because I held my son accountable in your place. We're set free. But then he wants to deliver us into an experience of that freedom, right? So he's declared us free, but he wants to make us free. He wants to deliver us into the joy of that freedom. And religion is man's substitute for God's work. Religion is our work for God instead of us resting in God's work for us. It's me saying, I will perform so God loves me. I will obey so that God is pleased with me. I will do these things so that God is impressed with me so that I can earn God's blessing. And God, meanwhile, is saying, look, you, you can't earn it. That's why I gave it to you. That's why it's grace. Stop trying to earn what I only give as a gift. Right? So that was two weeks ago. We kind of looked at that. When we, when we look toward our work for God, we rob ourselves of the hope of the gospel. We rob ourselves of the joy of the gospel. And ultimately, we rob ourselves of an experience of love in the gospel. Right? Last week, we took a look at, at the opposite side. Those who are like, okay, I'm going to stop performing because Jesus performed for me. And basically, use that as a covering for the flesh. And basically say, okay, since I'm forgiven, I can now use my forgiveness as a covering um, to do whatever I want. And, and we recognize that at the bottom of that is a, is a, is a misunderstanding about freedom. Right? They, they believe that freedom is getting to do whatever, want, whatever we want. Right? This is a very American view of freedom. As long as I can do whatever I want, then I'm free. Right? As long as I'm autonomous, I'm free. The problem is that's a, de, a, a faulty view of freedom. Freedom isn't getting to do what I want. Freedom is wanting what will give life. That's true freedom, wanting what will give life and then being able to do what I want, right? If my wanter is broken and bent toward things that destroy me, getting to do what I want is simply an indulgence in self-destruction, right? And so what we need is God to straighten out our wanter. We need God to give us straight desires for things that will give us life instead of things that will give us death. And, and then giving us the ability to get what we want, right? And then Paul now is uncovering why this is so hard. 
If you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, you know that it is both the most wonderful thing ever and the hardest thing ever. And I'm just going to be real, you know? When you become a believer in Jesus, it doesn't solve all your—well, it solves your cosmic problems, right? Your biggest problem is solved because Jesus died for you, you're forgiven, and, and you are declared right in Jesus. But what that does is it begins a process of God realigning your wanter, right? Getting into your heart and saying, let's straighten you out. That is a difficult and often painful process. And this is why. Because there are two forces now entrenched in your heart. One is called the flesh, and one is called the spirit. Now, when Paul talks about the flesh, again, he's not talking about our physical bodies, right? He's not, he's not saying that, that what is physical is, is evil and what is spiritual is good. We're not, we're not like a, a dualistic view of, of human condition. There's nothing in Scripture that says that the physical is evil, right? I mean, God himself became man, right? There's nothing wrong with that. When, when he rose from the dead, he rose in a body, right? It's not that the body itself is in any way intrinsically evil. It's the nature of the flesh, the sin nature. It's what we inherited from Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, what we see is at the beginning of, of the human story, mankind basically said to God, we can do life without you. We want to be like you. In other words, we'll take all the gifts you've given us, but we don't want you, the giver of the gifts. We want all the things you've given us, and we're going to pursue happiness and joy in a self-centered way. We're going to be the center of our lives, not you. We're going to live for our glory, not for your glory. We're going to, we're going to chase down things that, that we think we want independent of you. See, at the heart of, the, of, of that flesh nature is a desire to live, God and, uh, live life independent of God. It basically says, I'll take the gifts of God, thank you very much. I'll pursue them in the way I want to pursue them. I'll experience them the way I want to experience them. I just don't need the God of the gifts. I'll take all the good things, right? Sex, achievement, creativity, uh, influence, affection, whatever it is that God has given us. Health, physical well-being. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to the gift and I'm going to ask it to be God for me. I'm going to look to my achievement and say to it, will you please give me ultimate fulfillment? I will look to sex and say, will you give me ultimate fulfillment? Will you make me beautiful? Will you make me strong? Will you make me a man? I'm going to turn to to the gifts and I'm going to put God weight on them. And they simply can't do it. But the flesh is consistently, constantly whispering in our ear. You've got this. You can do it on your own. You don't need God, and in fact, you know better than God. So, so you don't need to follow Him. Follow yourself. It's an independent urge that ultimately says, I want the benefits of God without relationship with God. I want what God gives, but not who God is. And that leads to death because God is the source of life. We were created by God for God, created to live in the presence of God and the outflow of his, of his presence and the outflow of his goodness, right? And the end result is that as a believer now, we have these two forces, the spirit saying, follow me, I'll give you life. And the flesh saying, follow me, I'll give you life. And so we're constantly in conflict. Does, can you relate with this? Anybody been there? You ever had conflicting desires within you? 
And you're like, I don't know which way to go. Everything in you feels like this is what's going to give you life. And you're looking at it going, but that's the very thing God tells me not to do. But it feels so right. That's because we have these two desires deeply entrenched in our heart. And Paul says in um, verse uh, 17, these things are in opposition, and it keeps you from doing the things you want to do. Essentially what that means is you can't trust your own heart. You can't trust your own heart. You can't just do what feels right. That is one of the mantras of our culture. One of the mantras of our culture, cultural wisdom today, basically is whatever floats your boat. You know what I'm saying? If it makes you happy, do it, right? And what they see as the obstacle, the reason most people aren't happy is because they're not giving themselves fully to their hearts. Really? Have you seen what happens when people give themselves fully to their own hearts? Living in in self-centered, self-fulfilling commitment to their own desires? What ends up happening is that people experience pleasure for a season. They experience the joy of self-indulgence for a season. But it always ends up in the same place. See, when self-indulgence is what floats your boat, when it's about me being happy, yeah, it'll catch you in the rapids, and it'll be a rush, and, and there's pleasure in it. It's not that there isn't, but it always ends up in the same place. It's the pool of despair. It's death. It's separation from God. When you look at the, when you, when you take a step back, See, everybody always looks great in the moment. It's like we see people in the moment of indulgence and we're like, man, I want some of that. They look like they're having so much fun. They look like it's so fulfilling. They look like that's so awesome. But look at them the next morning. Look at them in 10 years. Look at them when when what they're sowing actually produces fruit in their life. And what you're going to find is that it's death. We cannot do the things that we want to do because our hearts lie to us, you guys. Our hearts lie to us because the flesh is constantly whispering to us, you don't need God. You got this. You can do it on your own. And since it's constantly working, we can constantly see the evidence of it in our lives. Verse 19, we kind of looked at this last week a little bit. Verse 19 through uh, verse 21 kind of give us a, 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 an insight, a glimpse into what the flesh looks like when it's at work in our lives, that broken part of us, right? Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, they're obvious. If you know what you're looking for, you're, you're going to see them. They're all the evidences that we are attempting to take the gifts of God and turn them into God. We're looking to things that aren't God to be God for us, right? And what ends up happening? We give ourselves over to sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. In other words, we we distort our sexual lives and and ultimately seek uh, ultimate fulfillment from sex. Instead of using it as a gift from God, we use it as God, right? Idolatry, sorcery. We turn to our own spirituality in an attempt to ultimately mm, replace God, right? We're, We're a very spiritual culture. We're a very spiritual people. And we can even use our spirituality as a way that, you know, if we can become spiritual enough, 
if we can get enough power to control ourselves. And that's what most spirituality today is about, is about controlling our emotions, controlling our environment, controlling our future. If we just think the right thoughts, we'll get the right results. And if we don't get the right results, it's because we obviously just weren't working hard enough to think the right thoughts, right? It's a way of manipulating the world to ultimately try to, again, be God. Uh, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, sins of relationship, sins of, of connectivity, drunkenness, orgies, sins of social indulgence, and things like these. Now, as I was going through this, I, I just something I, I kind of noticed that as I was sitting here, um, he groups, obviously, ideas together, right? So we have a list of ideas, but, but as I went through them, you know, I've shown you, like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, three ideas that, that deal with our, 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 um, the gift of sex, idolatry, sorcery, gifts of, of, of spirituality. Which is the longest list here? Well, it's obviously the gifts of relationship. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. (laughs) It's like three times longer than any other grouping, right? All of these words that basically talk about how we relate to one another. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was that church people are incredibly intolerant of the shorter list and incredibly tolerant of the longest list. Church people tend to get really intolerant about sexual sins, and we really get hard on people that are struggling with sexual sins. We get really hard on people that are, that are struggling with drunkenness and orgies and, and what we call partying. Which, by the way, I love that. What did you do this weekend? Partied. Then why do you look so miserable? You know what I'm saying? Like, like after a while... What we call partying is really just deferred misery. It's just like, can I just have another drink so I can stop feeling as miserable as I was 10 minutes ago? You know what I'm saying? Like, like anyway. Um, but the longest, the longest list here, you guys, is about relationships. When we're talking about the works of the flesh, what you need to realize is that the flesh, as a force, wants to separate you from the blessing of God. Basically, it says you can do life without God. And the flesh doesn't care whether you become religious or irreligious. The flesh doesn't care if you become self-controlled in your sexual life. What it cares about is if it is ultimately, in a sense, leading you away from God. And I think some people have become satisfied with being very moral. And yet, they are, in fact, living very fleshly lives. I mean, think about it, you guys. How do you relate to others? Enmity, strife, jealousy. Enmity just means that, that constant sense of, of finding people you disagree with, right? I define myself by what I'm not. That's the heart of enmity. I define myself by what I'm not. And as soon as I define myself by what I'm not, I can identify all the people who are not me. (laughs) And I can start identifying how I'm better than all the people that are not me. That's the flesh. The flesh is ultimately comparative. It's constantly trying to find ways to say you're better than others. Look. Look, they're not. They're, they're what you're not. They're, they're doing the things you don't do or, or valuing the things that are, you don't value, right? Strife is that sense of tension that you get. Jealousy. <laughs> you ever met a person that admits of jealousy? Jealousy is like the, the, nobody will ever admit, you know, it's like, I think you might be jealous. And everyone gets offended. Jealous? I wouldn't be a, a jealous of him. I wouldn't be jealous of her. I just don't like him. 
I just think they're wrong. I just think they're rude. I just think we find some other way to justify our enmity with them. We'll never admit to jealousy because that indicates they have something we want. That indicates that maybe somehow they're better than us. And we can't, the the flesh can't tolerate that. And so we'll never actually own up to jealousy. We'll find lots of other ways to describe it. Fits of anger. People that are prone to, I mean, honestly, instead of loving people and working into resolution with people, my instinct is anger. My instinct is to lash out, even if it's just in my heart, to them as the bad guy, right? Rivalries. You know what a rivalry is? A rivalry is a group of people who have a shared offense. A rivalry is a group of people who have a shared offense. They all got offended by the same person or the same thing. And then they all group together around their offense. And somehow they feel superior to this other group because that other group, man, they're the ones that she said the stupid thing or he did the stupid thing. And, and, and if you find yourself continually getting offended on other people's behalf, you may call that good friendship. The Bible calls it something else. That's an indication of the flesh, rivalries, group offense, getting offended on other people's behalf and then grouping with others. Dissensions, that's what it leads to. Dissensions are, of course, the beginning of of arguments. Divisions are are when that actually comes to fruition and and things actually start dividing on a a much more structured and clear scale. Envy, another one nobody wants to admit to. I hate to say it, but, but that right there describes a lot of the social settings. I mean, when I look at my Facebook feed, that describes my Facebook feed, Christian and non-Christian. You guys, what Paul is saying is that these are evidences of the flesh. This is how the flesh works its way out in our lives. It, 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 it insidiously comes in and plays to our pride It puffs us up and makes us feel good about ourselves and condemning toward others. It makes us feel strong in ourselves and subtly is saying, follow your heart. Do what feels right. Condemn people. Feel superior to people. Feel better than others. And when you're in that place, you guys, when you're up here looking down on others, You're not down here looking up at God. You are subtly putting yourself in the place of God, which is the continual temptation of mankind. It has been since Genesis 3. You will be like God. See, the reason I point this out is is not to condemn us, not to say, man, we're really, really bad at this stuff. We are bad at this stuff, let's admit it. But, But the point is we need to get good at identifying it. That's why Paul gives us a list, and he basically says, look, this isn't a complete list. It's things like these, and I want you to get good at identifying them. Why? Because these are the things that are sapping you of life. These are the things that are robbing you of your experience of joy. These are the places where God is inviting you to repent. Repent is such a heavy religious word, and it often has this negative connotation. We think of people on the street corner saying, repent or die, repent or die, right? 
Repentance is a gift from God that allows us to release what's giving us death and embrace what's giving us life. What he's saying is identify these areas of life where where you are living in that old nature and repent. See them for what they are. Things that are sapping you of vitality, robbing you of joy, distancing you from God, filling you with pride. And anything that fills you with pride will in the end undercut you with shame. Because we were never built to sit in the place of God. We'll always fail. And so what ends up happening is what gives us pride in the end will cover us with shame. And we'll hide the things that give us shame and we'll act out in ways that give us pride all the while dying. The flesh is entrenched in our hearts and it is fighting, fighting to rob us from our experience of God's presence. Paul gives us this very stern warning. We looked at this last week where he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the default mode of the human heart, the flesh. You guys know what I mean by that, right? When, when your computer goes all to crazy, what do you do? You turn it off and you turn it back on. Why? Because you're setting it back to default mode, right? Setting it back to default modes where it's supposed to run right. The problem is the default mode of the human heart is to walk in rebellion to God. Because that's where we start in Genesis 3. That's where we start from birth, right? We need to be delivered from our default mode and given a new way to do life, which, of course, is the work of Christ. And what he's saying is that those who do such things, the word do here is a present participle, which indicates a persistent way of doing life. If this defines you, if, if you are determined to do life apart from God, if you are determined to be like God, in the end, God will give you the desire of your heart, which is a kingdom without God. And that is the very definition of hell. Doing life without the source of life. Pursuing joy and never being able to be fulfilled in joy. Thank God there is, of course, a deliverance, and that comes in Christ. We're delivered by believing in Jesus, and we're continued to be delivered by continuing to believe in Jesus. And in fact, that's where he goes. He's like, look, you've got this piece of you that, that is walking, just wants to rob you of life, right? I want to deliver you from it. And I'm going to do that through the Spirit. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit in comparison to the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You guys, look at that list. Is there anything on that list you don't want? Anything there you want to pass on? You know, like when you sit down to a a high-end meal and you're looking and you're like, you know what, I like everything here but those green beans, those just don't look very appetizing to me. The calamari, no, I don't do that, you know. Is there anything on this list that you would pass on? You're like, ah, that gentleness thing. Really? You guys, this is the description of life as it was meant to be. Love. Love is the antidote of selfishness and self-centeredness. See, we go through life being all about me. Love is all about the other. Love is what frees our hearts to give freely and to receive freely. 
The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Self-centeredness. It's all about me. Love is what releases our death grip on self-interest. And it's in releasing that death grip that we're actually able to receive grace, to receive love. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. It is an experience of God's love for us. The primary work of the gospel in our lives is to give us a deep experience of the love of God. Because love is the only force powerful enough in the universe to change our hearts. Scripture tells us that we love God because he first loved us. God was the preemptive lover. He reached out to us while we were still unlovable. He he reached out to us and loved us even while we were not inviting his love. It says, while we were yet enemies, God sent his son. While we were still at enmity against him, basically saying, we're going to be like you. We don't need you. He said, I know you do. And I'm going to love you in spite of your rebellion. I'm going to love you so much. I'm going to identify with your rebellion. I'm going to take the consequences of your rebellion. I'm going to die for you and rise again for you. And it's in being gripped by that kind of love that our hearts are freed to once again experience love and not a complex form of selfishness. Most of what we call love, honestly, is, is really about us. I say I love you, but what I really mean is I like the way you make me feel. I say I love you, but what I mean is I really like the way I feel valued in your presence or I feel beautiful in your presence or I feel masculine in your presence. That's what we mean by falling in love, right? Falling in love, that sounds like danger to me, right? Tripping and hitting your head on something. And what it really means is is somehow it caught me off guard the way you make me feel about me. So I like you. I'm not saying there's no love involved in that, but I am saying there is a twisted nature to that. And that's why people who fall in love, it doesn't take long for them to fall out of love. Because if it really is just about me, when you stop making me feel good about me, I no longer love you. See, the fruit of the Spirit is unconditional love. God loves us unconditionally and then gives us the gift of love so that we can actually come to love people, not because of how they make us feel, but because how God has freed our hearts. We can value people because they're made in the image of God, the God we love because he first loved us. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. It is the transformative power, the only power strong enough in the universe to change your heart. And I believe the rest of these honestly flow from there. Joy. Joy is a byproduct of love. Of loving and being loved. Of knowing that someone delights in you unconditionally. Regardless of your faults and your flaws. Somebody who who doesn't look down on you for your weaknesses. Doesn't shame you for where you fall short. But loves you in spite of that. In fact, loves you so much he'll deliver you from it. Peace. Peace is that sense of contentment and wholeness. That that sense of, of balance that comes from knowing that all is well, all is good. Patience. Hmm. The word here literally means to be long-suffering with people. Um, When we're loved, it gives us patience with others, with their flaws, with their 
rough spots, with their rudeness, with it just increases. They don't irritate us as quickly. You know, they, they just don't get under our skin as quickly. They just don't like, like drive us crazy as quickly. It's long suffering because our needs are not dependent on what they give. Our needs are fulfilled in what God gives. That allows us to be patient, to be kind. Kindness is that, that goodness of inclination towards somebody that says, I'm for you. I'm for you. Not because you're for me, but because there's a generosity of heart that it's the result of being loved. There's a generosity of heart that I've been released to. I no longer look to you for what you can give me. I am freed in generosity of heart to be kind to you regardless of what you can give me or how you make me feel. Gentleness, or excuse me, uh, goodness, um, an inclination toward what gives life, faithfulness, a consistency of life that flows from, from being grounded in an unconditional love, uh, 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 removes the fickleness of somebody who's simply pursuing their passions and desires. One day this makes me happy, the next day this makes me happy. This is somebody who's faithful, steady, somebody full of faith in God and strong in following God. Gentleness is the counterpart to that. I love that, faithfulness and gentleness. One is strength and the other is a gentleness and strength an appropriate use of strength. The image that comes to my mind a lot of times are those big hulky guys, you know, holding those babies. You know, another word for that is meekness. Meekness is a beautiful word that that our culture has lost the value of. Meekness is the idea of appropriately exercised strength. It's not weakness. It's just appropriate strength. It's the strength that is appropriate to the situation. It's somebody who knows how to be both tough and tender. Tough when they need to be tough. Tender when they need to be tender. They're not threatened to be bullies. They they don't need to to man up. They don't need to perform or, or they don't need to pretend. They're comfortable with their strength and they're comfortable enough to restrain their strength. Faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Not being controlled by one's passions, not being controlled by one's circumstances, not looking for anything outside of oneself to ultimately give what only God can give. Self-control that comes from resting in the God of control. If you could write a book that told people how to live this kind of life, you'd be a best-selling author. You'd be on Oprah. People would pay you a lot of money. People pay you a lot of money as long as you would tell them how to get this without God. Here's the thing, you guys. This kind of life is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, think about that. I want you to think about it. First of all, Paul described the works of the flesh. Now he's describing the fruit of the Spirit. What's the difference between works of flesh and fruit of Spirit? Works of flesh, obviously, are things we do. We take the initiative. We take the impetus. We are going to solve our own problems. We are going to be like God. Fruit. If you're a branch, do you produce fruit? You actually don't. You stay attached to the vine. And by staying attached to the vine, you produce fruit. Fruit is the byproduct of being attached to a healthy vine. These qualities are byproducts of living in relationship with God. These are the things that result when we are connected to the Spirit. I've heard some people teach this passage, and what they do is they take 
this list of the fruit of the Spirit, and they turn them into check boxes, things to do in your life. So identify which of the fruit of the Spirit you need to work on and get to work. That doesn't make any sense. First of all, how many fruit are there here? Take a look at the text, verse 22. How many fruit are there? I'm being an English nerd here, former English teacher. One, the fruit of the Spirit is, that's singular. What that means is you can't parse these fruit out into individual tasks that you accomplish. God will either be forming all of these things in you, or he won't. You can't just decide, well, this is the one I'm going to work on this week. I'm going to grow in this. It is a byproduct of relationship. And what he's saying is when you're connected, when you're walking in the Spirit, when you're connected to God, these things will be produced in your life. God will produce them, not you. God will do these things in you, not you. Let me just pause for a minute. This is one of the reasons the Christian life is so stinking frustrating. Let's just be honest. We want control. We want to fix this stuff. You know what I'm saying? You're looking at your own heart and you're like, I am so sick of not being self-controlled. This week, I'm going to do it. And we take something that's the fruit of our relationship with God. We turn it into a task to do. And surprise, surprise, we fail. Or worse, we think we succeed. And then we get puffed up in pride. And once again, we're trying to sit in the seat of God. And then we fail and we're filled with shame. And we're back on the roller coaster of pride and shame and pride and shame. You know what I'm saying, you guys? Isn't this frustrating? This is, this is the reality of it. The problem, though, I mean, the challenge is this. It's incremental change. God will change us and is changing us as followers of Christ, but it takes time. It's a process. You ever been at that point in your Christian life where you feel like, you know what, man, a couple years ago, I was so much more mature than I am today. I was so much more farther in, in, in my walk with God. I, I was so, you ever been there? Like you really felt like, like a couple years ago, man, I was, I was like almost to the finish line. I was almost perfect a couple years ago. I mean, seriously, I'm, when I first became a believer, I was all lit up, man. I was so excited about my relationship with God. I was reading my Bible. I was praying. I was like almost to heaven. And then life happened. And man, I just regressed. I slid down the mountain. I just misstepped and drew all the way to the bottom. It's like chutes and ladders. And I hit the chute, right? Oh, I got to climb all the way back up the ladder again. Is it possible that you didn't really slide all the way down to the bottom of the mountain? You just have a more realistic view of how tall the mountain is? Is it possible that God and his grace is simply giving you a little bit more glimpse of how messed up you are? And how long it's going to take for him to change you and set you free? Is it possible that he's giving you that glimpse because you were getting a little prideful? You were starting to feel a little too good about yourself and your strength and your achievement and your ability to do this thing in your own power. And he's like, let me just pull back the curtain a little more. Let me just show you a little more of your own heart because you need to despair right now. That's what you need. Not because I want to hurt you, but because I want to turn you back to what gives you life. And that's dependence on me. 
You're starting to think you can do this thing without me. You're starting to think that you've got it. You don't. That's the flesh lying to you. So I'm going to give you a little greater glimpse of just how broken you are. How far you have to go. How weak you actually are. Not to crush you. But to free you. To push you back to this place where you walk by the Spirit. So this is the... This is the, the you guys, this, this passage right here, to me, is the highlight of the entire letter. This passage right here over the last 17 years, or excuse me, the last 25 years of my Christian life, has been one of the most profound passages in my walk with God and discovering what it means to actually grow in Christ. And it all comes down to this very simple sentence in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In the Greek, that's a triple negative. Now, in English, you can't do that, right? In English, your, your English teacher will, will slap your wrist with a ruler if you try to do this sort of thing. Because we all know that a double negative actually creates a positive, right? I don't want no green beans actually means you want green beans, right? I don't want no... I want, all right. So double negatives produce a positive in English. In Greek, they become emphatic, So the more negatives you use, the more emphatic it becomes. This is a triple negative. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not. You could not. It's impossible that you could gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? Why? Because when your appetite is being filled by what actually gives life, you won't be tempted by what gives death. To walk in the Spirit means to order your life in such a way that you're pursuing God. To walk in the Spirit means, in in a sense, to be keeping step with God. It means to walk in submission to God. It means that you allow God to be the boss of your life. You allow God to be God. And when he says, don't do that, you're like, okay, the God of all life and the giver of all good gifts is telling me that will give me death. I trust him. And when he says, no, I want you to do that, you look at God, the giver of life, the giver of all good gifts, the source of life, and you say to him, if you want me to do that, that must be for my blessing and my good. To keep in step with the Spirit means to submit ourselves to the leading of the Spirit in our lives. To trust him more than we trust ourselves. To listen to him more than we listen to our own flesh. To trust that he's telling us the truth, even if everything in our heart is screaming out to us that it is not true. Like when when God says, don't go there, and everything in you is like, man, that's my happiness right over there. That's what I need right over there. That If I can just get that, then I will finally, forever, completely be happy. But God's telling me not to go over there. See, to walk by the Spirit means that even in that moment, you realize your heart is a liar. And that part of you wants to enslave you and destroy you. So you trust God more than you trust yourself. To walk in the Spirit means you obey even when you don't feel like obeying. You're like, Steve, that sounds like legalism. That's not legalism. That's faith. Legalism is when we do our works to try to earn God's blessing. Faith is realizing we already have God's blessings. He already loves us completely in Christ and now wants to deliver us into the fullness of life that he's given us in Christ. And so I'm willing to obey, even if I don't feel like obeying. I will will say, you are telling me the truth, even if everything in me is telling me it's not true. 
I will follow you. I will keep in step with the Spirit. I will grow alive. And this is, you guys, this is, here's the thing. It's not just about obedience. God's not concerned with your behavior. He's concerned with your heart because your heart always controls your behavior. What God wants is for you to delight in him as the one who is infinitely delightful. He wants you to see him as the source of life, not an obstacle to life. He wants you to see him as what he is, an infinite source of beauty and joy and goodness. And when you see him as that, you will willingly and joyfully submit yourself to him. In the same way you do in human relationships. Love always requires submission, doesn't it? As soon as I decide that I love someone, when I'm moved to love someone, I will immediately begin submitting my desires to theirs, my will to theirs. I will start seeking their good. Why? Because I treasure them. I love them. Love always leads to submission. Love always leads to obedience. And it's not degrading. It's not humiliating. It's freeing. Why would it be any different with God? Love calls us to obey. Love calls us to submit. Love calls us to treasure him and love him. And from that place of love to obey. It's love-driven obedience, not performance-driven obedience. It is responding to a God who loves us and saying, I love you. It means shaping our appetites to crave what gives life. I want you to glance over to chapter 6 as we wrap this up. These are a lot of great principles. When we're talking about the appetites of our heart, man, this is, this is deep and muddy water. This is difficult stuff. But there are some principles that I think will help us. In verse 8, Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That doesn't mean you're going to earn it. It means that you start enjoying the benefits of it, right? Eternal life is not a length of time that you earned in the future. It's a quality of life that you have now in Christ. It's the kind of life that is unshakable, unbreakable, undimmed, right? So, so he's saying, I will give you the quality of eternal life even now. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit. It, this battle's going on in our hearts. The Spirit is already victorious, right? There's no question. Because of the work of Christ, God will get his glory in you, right? Jesus died in your place. He took your shame. You'll be delivered, right? But he wants you to experience that deliverance now. He wants you to experience that life now. As you sow to the flesh, you empower the flesh, and you will reap corruption, As you sow to the Spirit, you empower your experience of the Spirit and you reap life. How are you guys doing sowing to the Spirit? Followers of Christ. How are you doing? I mean, there there are a few things that are just common sense here. How are you doing with the Word? opening it up and reading it on a daily basis? How are you doing feeding that part of you, right? Because when you turn to the Word, the Word of God 
is, is God's written message to us. It enlivens us. It directs us. It, it, it enlightens us, right? When, when you open the word to discover God, he reveals himself to you. How are you doing in prayer? Turning to God and, and simply learning to, to share with him your concerns. Or look to him for wisdom. Ask him for direction. Becoming sensitive to his leading. How are you doing with community? Moving into a group of believers where you're known and you know and, and, and you're letting people into your life and, and, and you're getting involved in other people's lives. And you're like, really? That, that's, yeah. God never intended your spiritual walk to be done in isolation. Right? I don't know if you've noticed, but this entire passage isn't a passage about community. It begins with don't bite and devour one another, and it ends with don't be conceited provoking one another. It, this whole thing is about doing life with one another. How are you doing with community? Here's the thing, you guys. What you sow to will either empower your experience of one part of your heart or another. So let's be a people committed to walking in the Spirit, to experiencing the fullness of life, believing God, that He is good, that He is delightful, that He gives us what we most deeply desire because He's a good God who loves us and wants to deliver us into the freedom that He's won for us in Christ. You guys are going to move into time of response, and in this time, I'm going to ask you to pray and, and just do some reflection with God. Let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. I put some questions up here to kind of help us in this process. Let me just kind of walk through these. In what ways are you sowing to the flesh? You are. In what ways are you sowing to the flesh? In what ways are you feeding that part of you that says, I can do life without God? And if you're not sure, look for the evidences of flesh in your life. Remember that list? Where are those areas that you're most prone to turn to the gifts of God instead of God himself? What does it look like for you to trust God instead of your flesh in that area? What does it look like for you to come to God in prayer, not in shame, not cowering, not afraid, but but coming before God, knowing that you're forgiven in Christ and saying to him, this is an area of struggle. Spirit, will you help free me? Will you help realign my affections? Next one. How is God prompting you to sow to the Spirit to increase your love for Him and trust in Him? Does that look like maybe downloading an app to your phone that empowers you to have a devotional time daily, get into the Word, actually getting up maybe five minutes earlier and, and, and reading the Word, or, or maybe turning off the radio on the way to work and, and, and listening to or praying or, or just creating space in the incredible busyness of your life to sow to the Spirit, right? Where is that? To increase your love for Him and trust for Him. Again, these aren't things we do to impress God. These aren't things we do to get God to love us more. These are things we do to make us more sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, to open our hearts to the blessings we already have in Christ. And then finally, how are you inviting community into your spiritual growth? How are you finding places of vulnerability? finding places of, of, of letting people pray for you and support you and love you in spite of your brokenness, not hiding in shame, but actually 
recognizing that you're a broken person invited into a broken community. Not to fight for your glory, not to defend yourself, but to be a community of grace. A community where we all basically come together and say, thank God we are forgiven by Christ. How do we experience the best of what Christ has for us? Guys, let's take a few minutes. We're going to pray. We'll share communion together in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are the giver of good gifts and that your gifts are not dependent on our ability to earn them. You don't wait for us to initiate with you. You initiate with us. I thank you that you loved us and that you continue to love us. Lord, I pray for my friends this morning. I pray for those here who maybe don't know you, have never actually trusted in Christ, believed the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would make the invitation of grace irresistible to them this morning. That they would hear you saying that you love them. That because of the work of Christ, they are forgiven and can be made new. That you will prompt them this morning to accept the gift of grace. And Lord, I pray for us, Christ followers. That we would be undone by grace. Amazed by your love. Moved in gratitude. Freed. To stop building our kingdom. Stop fighting for our glory. Stop trying to be you. And would find the greatest delight and the greatest honor in simply keeping in step with the Spirit. Knowing, Lord, that you're the one that leads us through these trenches. You're the one that leads us to freedom. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion together in a moment.